0: Hi, this is Roger McGuinn, and my favorite station is WMNF, Tampa, Florida.
1: Here comes the sun, here comes the sun, and I say it's all right.
2: Hello, and welcome to the Sustainable Living Show on WMNF Tampa 88.5, where every Monday at 11, we bring you a conversation with local experts on sustainable issues. Today's guest is Charlie Fisher, and we're going to be talking about birding. And Kenny, our uh, my co-host, is not here today. He's sick, and we hope that he gets a speedy recovery because I miss him. So much every time, every Monday when he's not, when I'm not here, or he's not here. And uh, it must be going around, you know, because I'm still a little, a little horse, or I guess you could call it a little pony, <laughs> but uh, I'm, you know, I can't believe how this is happening. I, I can, this is the first time I've been sick and I can't even tell you how long, so there must be. <clears throat> excuse me there must be a lot of things going around so you guys be careful out there washing your hands a lot I think that's probably what happened with me I just I'd probably touch my face after uh, touching something else so um, so that's it I wanted to also thank uh, Bill Bill Grace is right across from me and he does everything we couldn't do it without him he does our sound work and I uh, just love him. And then we also have Irene is working the phones today. So whenever uh, we get this party started, uh, please give us a call in um, at 813 or two, uh, 239-9663. Or you can send us an email at dj at WMNF.org and we'll read it on the air. Um, today... Well, I was going to tell y'all too, what this weekend, what I, I did this weekend, thank goodness I'm able to actually do something anymore. Uh, I, it was, uh, beautiful weather. So I got, I, even though I'm going to move, I, prepared my garden. Isn't that funny? I have to. I, I just have to prepare my garden. I figured whoever buys the house will at least have a garden started. So I did all my compost, took my compost out of my compost bins. Uh, I had gotten composted um, mulch from Newport Ritchie. And... Uh, did a ton of work and it was so satisfying. And so I'm, you know, I'm starting to be able to get my seeds in the ground, and uh, any starter plants that I have. So I just encourage you all to do that because I don't know how many know or how many don't know, but this is our growing season in Florida. We do much better in the winter time because it's just too hot in uh, in our Florida area to grow many things. So I'll be. Getting my lettuces in, and my basil, and uh, lots of different herbs uh, for me to grow, and also uh, different pollinator flowers. So I encourage you to do the same. Uh, but today, uh, we're also, we have Charlie Fisher who is with me in the house. Thank you for being here, Charlie.
0: Thank you so much, Annie. Appreciate you having me here.
2: Well, we're delighted because, especially because you're sitting right next to me, which I love that we are able to talk directly eye to eye. It's it's just a much better situation uh, than, you know, a call in. So let me just tell you guys a little bit about Charlie. He's been an active birder for 20 years, ever since he took a new client in his CPA practice who introduced him to the joys of bird identification and in advance of a family summer beach trip to Sanibel. And one trip to the Ding Darling, a National Wildlife Refuge in Sanibo Island with binoculars and a field guide was all it took. And I love that name, Ding Darling. We're going to talk about that in a minute because that guy was fantastic. Absolutely. That's the name of a guy that they named the park after because he was so great. Um, And when he got home, he registered for the 2003 uh, Florida Nature and Birding Festival and signed up for eBird, threw out his golf clubs. And a much better thing to do than golfing, I think, and has been off in the field ever since. In 2005, he participated in his first Christmas bird count, the Isle of Firebanks uh, in South uh, Hillsborough County, and has been the compiler or co-compiler of the count since 2011. He's participated in 103 bird count, Christmas bird counts. And if weather permits, we'll participate in another seven this year. Wow, that's a lot in a whole year. I had no idea. Uh, other citizen science projects in which Charlie has participated include the USGS Breeding Bird Survey, t- 2016 to present, the Florida Orthodontics. How do you say that, Charlie?
0: Ornithological. Ornithological. Ornithological Society Breeding Bird Atlas Two.
2: Wow, that's a mouthful, isn't (laughs) it? Indeed. Thank you for pronouncing that for me. And the North American Migration Count, the Winter Shorebird Survey, and the Large-Scale eBird Project uh, from 2003 to present. Uh, And Charlie is married to Beth and has four kids and is a shareholder with a tax accountancy firm of Riley Fisher and Solomon, PA. He has an undergraduate degree in history from Princeton University, good for you, and a master's of accounting from the University of South Florida. So he has... I mean this is fantastic. We we wanted to have somebody from the Audubon Society uh and we were contacting them and I think they volunteered
0: uh I was volunteered. <laughs> yes. Indeed. Didn't know you were but <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> they they volunteered him and uh we're delighted that you're here uh, cuz this is so interesting to me.
0: Thank you so much.
2: Yeah. Well um I wanted to talk, first off, let's just talk about Jay Norwood Darling. Absolutely. Because he was instrumental in the effort to block the sale of a parcel of environmentally valuable land to developers on Sanibel Island. And this was in 1945, y'all. President Harry S. Truman signed an executive order creating the Sanibel National Wildlife Refuge in 1945. So that's an area that was, that was the first place you went, right?
0: Yes. Yes. Uh, To extend the golf analogy, um, this would be akin to playing your first round of golf at Pebble Beach and then deciding, oh my gosh, this is a lot of fun. Yeah. So uh, yes, the first place I ever went uh, consciously birdwatching uh, was the Ding Darling National Wildlife Refuge on Sanibel Island. And it is just a gorgeous place.
2: I did not know anything about it, and of course, the name really gets you. You know, you're like "Ding Dong, Darling." sounds like an old 1930s song. Or indeed, something.
0: indeed. I think it was uh, Mr. Darling's uh, longtime nickname, yeah. uh, "Ding." And I think it, it came from the way he was. He was actually a cartoonist. Oh. That's sort of how he ultimately found his way into the the originally the Roosevelt administration. Ultimately, you know that that big action with the Truman administration. But he had been a cartoonist with a lot of interests in uh, conservation uh, activities and the conservation movement. And I think that his signature uh, for J.W. Darling kind of came out looking a little bit like Ding. And he got the nickname Ding.
2: Oh, I see. Well, that's that's even more interesting background on that. I was reading a little bit about it just because I love to do research. And, uh, and it said that that area had been uh, primarily an agricultural area farming. And then some big hurricane came or some big storm anyway came and wiped that area out. And then all of a sudden, you know, the developers were looking at it hungrily. Uh, because that's what they do. Yes. So thank goodness for him, you know, for stepping up and doing that, and and having the uh, persistence to get that done.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. He was he was instrumental in saving a a large portion of that uh, that really beautiful island.
2: Yeah, I've uh, never been to that spot, but Sanibel Island is just gorgeous. Just in general, you know. So thank goodness. Thank you, Mister Darling. And all your relatives from now on, appreciate it. Now, the one thing that you're really involved in, and really the thing that we should probably talk about quite a bit, because it's coming up, is uh, the Christmas bird count. And can you tell us a little bit about what that is? When did it start? And that sort of thing.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. So the the, the Christmas bird count, on a, on a personal level, it was the first really kind of serious citizen science project that I got involved with as a uh, as as a beginning birder, and so it was it was exciting to have that as the opportunity to to really learn my chops uh, as far as uh, bird watching and bird identification, um, and so it's it's a it's a wonderful entry point for for an interested um, avid bird watcher. But how did the Christmas bird count itself start? Um, and
2: why really because we were just talking about that.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So the the background mm-hmm. there is in the, the first Christmas bird count was actually in uh, 1900 Christmas That's of 1900. So this year will be the 124th Christmas bird count. And the the Christmas bird count began uh, when the um, the editor of Bird Lore magazine, a gentleman is, by does it the, still exists? Bird Lore magazine has ultimately evolved into and become Audubon's monthly magazine. Oh,
2: okay, very good.
0: So Frank Chapman uh, was at the time beginning to get involved with uh, with the National Audubon Society, which was only a couple of decades old. He had um, he had started Bird Lore magazine, and he was the bird curator of the um, national the, the 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 national. Um,
2: um, the National Association of the United States.
0: The uh, no, it was it was. Uh, I apologize. It was uh, the uh, the Natural History Museum oh, okay. located on on Manhattan in New York. And he okay. was the he was the uh, the lead curator of the bird collection.
2: And that meant they killed the birds. Stuffed them and had them in there for display. Certainly, so that was a different attitude then.
0: Certainly, so. at the time, yes, he would have he would have been uh, uh, curating a a, a physical uh, collection, mm-hmm. and uh, so he was well aware of of what had been happening with bird populations over the course of the preceding decades, and there were two big things. Um, that were happening at the at the end of the the 19th century that are a little bit different from what are what are, are happening now. The kinds of pressures that birds are under currently, and those were number one, there was extensive uh, commercial hunting of birds for food. A lot of really, lot I of, was
2: thinking hats when you were going to do that. Well,
0: uh, the 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 second main thing that were happening with with birds was there was extensive commercial hunting for personal decorations okay. for humans. And, uh, and... I'm and,
2: surprised, though, that they were hunting them for food. I mean, you know, because now we grow things for, you know, commercially uh, for food. Not absolutely. we, other people do. Uh, but. That were they were taking wild wild birds.
0: Yeah, and that was that was a pressure that was very different then than there is now. We have a lot of recreational hunting now, but very little active commercial hunting for restaurants. Right. And and at the time, uh, there was there was an awful lot of harvesting of uh, of ducks and uh, grassland birds and all sorts of birds for uh, uh, for restaurants and for the for the food trade. That's those are two things that have changed. But the, the thing that got Mr. Chapman interested, uh, what chapped
2: Mr. Chapman, what
0: chapped Mr. Chapman uh, in <laughs> advance of the first Christmas bird count was he actually did a little uh, survey uh, when he was walking around Manhattan one day and he kept a list of all of the birds that he saw adorning people. Oh, my goodness. So he was looking
2: at the folks' outfits, and he was writing down the type of birds that those feathers came from. Absolutely. That is amazing. He
0: counted 542 (gasps) individuals who had birds or parts of birds on them. Oh,
2: my goodness.
0: And he said that he was able to separately identify 42 separate bird species in those uh, adornments. Usually in hats, the millinery trade was very big at the time. and Even and men's hats, hats
2: would have a small, short feather. They would have a cut feather. Yes. Uh, now that I was thinking about it, because I know the women had these huge, crazy hats on, but the Absolutely. men even would have the short feathers in the sides too.
0: Yeah, no, no doubt. I, I'm yeah. sure that the feathers were, uh, were, were, were used on, on everyone's hats at the time. And there was a point at which the, 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 the feathers of the, of the egret... Um, the breeding feathers in particular, were worth more than their weight in gold. Uh, so these, these, these feathers ultimately represented an, an international trade uh, for garments and, uh, and um, millinery uses. Um, but Mr. Chapman saw that on his bird walk through Manhattan that day. And when he was writing up his, uh, his, his editorial comments for the next Bird Lore magazine, um, in i guess late uh, late nineteen hundred um, he asked his readers to submit a bird list for all of the birds that they could count on Christmas day that year
2: oh, and that meant on people. Mm-hmm. And uh, in, no, in
0: the this air, was, this was uh, this was just everywhere. Okay, um, Any, anywhere was, you
2: saw a feather,
0: he was just he was uh, you know personally prompted and uh, personally motivated um, by 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 seeing all of those those feathers on on individuals worn as adornments. And the way he he couched the project for his readers is is he said, you know, a number of decades ago, it would have been pretty common in our country for people to have a competitive side hunt at Christmas. Apparently this was a, this was a tradition that had gone on in the 19th century, but Chapman even said in his editorial letter in, uh, in 1900 that it was a, a tradition that was more or less of the past, but that he was hoping that he could start a new tradition of a side hunt of counting birds. And since he was a, since he was a science guy, he also asked when the participants made their bird list if they would keep track of the weather, if they would keep track of the, the wind and temperature.
2: Yeah, that makes uh, sense to see why they were there or why they weren't there.
0: Exactly. And whether or not weather was, uh, was affecting their all observations. Right. To count up all of the individuals that they saw and to categorize them into species ordered according to the then- American Ornithological Union uh checklist so the, the the proper phylogenetic order for science purposes so even in that even in that first year he was kind of thinking it sounds like of it being ultimately a scientific enterprise or something that would be of, of eventual scientific use.
2: That's interesting. You know, when you were talking about that and you were saying that this was something that people did, they did the count, it was a competitive count uh, in the past, I'm not sure that that still doesn't happen because I remember seeing a comedy movie with Jack Black in as, as one of the stars, and it was all about the competitive bird count in this specific area and they had a certain amount of time to get it done. And, uh, I'm sure that's, I mean, obviously it wasn't just made up, you know, as far as like, uh, because what you're saying to me is that is something that's really done. And I was thinking that probably is something that's still really done.
0: Absolutely. I, uh, you, glad you, you brought that up. Because you have to be a was, bird uh,
2: nerd, right. To get <laughs> this right.
0: Because that certainly represented <laughs> a, a, you know, that was a, a, a Hollywood film, uh, with Steve Martin and Jack. Oh, Black, Steve
2: Martin. Okay, yeah. It was the, funny.
0: Funny movie. Yeah, yes. and it was called uh, the Big Year. The
2: Big Year. That's and,
0: right. And what what it what what that movie was was referring to and reaching out to um, was the the idea of of competitive bird listing, modern yeah. competitive bird listing. Um, and in the case of what they call a big year, uh, what that is is an individual counting all of the birds, the bird species that they can for a year, you know, January 1st through des- December 31st within a specified area. That's normally going to be the, the American Birding Association listing area, which is the United States, Canada, and Hawaii.
2: Oh, so it can yeah. be any of those places and they stay at that one place for a while and list all the ones that are active in that time period and then move to another spot
0: yeah the people that are doing that kind of competitive list they're not going to be keeping track of uh of the the, the weather or keep or keeping no. track of anything it's in a particular location or counting the number of birds right they're just trying to count the most species so they can have bragging rights at the end of oh, yeah. the oh yeah it was
2: intense in it's, that uh, program and I imagine it's probably like that I actually. would
0: I would imagine it's a lot of fun yeah. I would imagine it costs a lot of money right because you have all to around fl- the country and like then
2: that. you have to stay but, there uh, while you're there too so
0: it, absolutely so that's uh, so that's a that's that is indeed a bird watching thing, but yeah. but it's a very different kind of bird watching thing than the Christmas bird count. Yeah, but.
2: and then so how does it work? I mean, what do you what? How does this work when you're going to go do your Absolutely. Christmas bird count? What are your first steps? And and because you told me when, when is it? It's December fourteenth through.
0: Through January 5th.
2: And so if you're doing that, do you do that something on a daily or how does that work for
0: you? Absolutely. So (laughs) an, an individual Christmas bird count will take place on one individual day during the specified count period. And the specified count period has now been formally defined as the day's uh, December 14th through January 5th of every year inclusive. So a count could be on de- December 14th or January 5th. I think that makes a total of 23 days. And that actually was standardized around the time of the one, 104th count when the <laughs> the the, the, uh, That's the, so the folks, specific. <laughs> the folks at Audubon uh, and the scientific community realized they had something really special here. They well, had a but- time series a winter bird survey that was lasting over 100 years and they ought to put some standardization and yeah exactly so so it's consistent exactly yeah
2: we don't want apples and oranges so so if since it's you personally and you are here with me so what do you do on day one of your bird count Let's, let's just take that as a for instance
0: absolutely well um I am the compiler of of, uh, of, of a, of a so, bird count so That's you write down everybody's
2: index. information that they get from other places
0: absolutely okay. so um, to, to to just dial it back a little bit to give um, to, to give a, a couple of parameters on on kind of how the count works each day yeah um, the the count lasts 24 hours starting uh, at the stroke of midnight and then going to midnight of 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 the of that day. Uh, so wait a minute. Yes. So
2: people are going to go out there at the stroke of midnight. Cause I'm seeing this bird nerdism is probably deep. So they're going to go out <laughs> there at one minute after midnight and it dark in this area and then start their count.
0: Is as that a, real? As a practical matter. People don't do that. Okay. You're, you're exactly I was just right.
2: thinking they're like jumping, you know, <laughs> the gun goes off and they're running towards this yeah. thing. That's what I was seeing in my eyes.
0: The, uh, the, <laughs> the, the scientific protocol does cover a 24 hour period though. Uh-huh. Uh, so, and the, the count will cover a specific area. Okay. So the specific area is a 15 mile diameter circle and that circle doesn't move year to year. Well, let me ask you
2: this: If somebody's in that circle, how how does it how can you tell that you didn't count the same bird over and over again? I mean, that just seems that just seems. Redundant, you know. If if there's if there's people in the same circle and they're counting these birds, and even just one individual person, I know I see the same blue jay in my yard. You know, I have other blue jays, but I definitely see the same one over and over again. How does that tell us what the real true number is?
0: Well, you're making you're making an outstanding practical. Point. Oh, and very is good! Absolutely, I love true. the good question. <laughs> yeah, yes, indeed. And it is the it is the job of the compiler. Okay, the person who is charged with gathering up all of the information from from his or her volunteers to appropriately estimate and make sure that things aren't double counted. So let me give you an, an example. Yes, a, please, because I compiler. can't even
2: I can't even yeah. understand how they would be able to sell that, you know, unless you know, if you see the beak is a little bit different or you know, but they're not saying all those things in their information sheet. I'm in, sure,
0: indeed, no. Okay. So, uh, so the way this works as a practical matter is number one. For birds which can be seen in very, very large numbers at one time. Right. So birds, for example, that are flying out of a morning roost first thing in the morning. We have a we have a term for this that we use in the uh, Christmas bird count and, and birding world. We call that the liftoff. Oh, yeah. Right? At the very beginning of the day when the light first begins to, uh, to 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 get pretty noticeable in the sky and the sky is light they're
2: going out hunting
0: y- it, hunting or just exiting the place that they were resting overnight so oh. that they can you know go about their their various daily activities but a lot of birds will stay together in large groups uh, sometimes in single species i groups.
2: saw that starling thing that's a phenomenon of the starlings and how they all meld together it's amazing.
0: Yes, absolutely. When they're when they're flying together. Yes, uh, that's pretty remarkable. I think they call that a a murmuration.
2: Yes, you know, that is. That's exactly what it's called. It's like beautiful. That. You guys ought to look that up.
0: It's it's pretty remarkable. Mm-hmm. But for example, um, fish crows. Uh, used to be found in very, very, very big numbers on the, the Alafia Banks count. And that was because in the mangrove areas uh, around the, the mouth of the Alafia River, um, the, uh, the, the, the birds would fly out of a big roost there in the morning. And we would, it would not be unusual for the person near the liftoff to get a count of 20, 21, 22,000 birds. 22,000? Oh, yeah. Wow. Absolutely.
2: And it's called a fish crow.
0: Fish crow. So that's, I'm just giving an example. Yeah, but I want to ask about that bird. That's why. Absolutely. Absolutely. So it's a, a member of the Corvus genus. Um, we have a lot of them in Florida. They tend to like the coastal areas. Well, I would
2: think they eat
0: fish. (laughs) They they certainly got that name. They'll eat anything.
2: Okay.
0: (laughs) Be careful while you're out there, birders. (laughs) (laughs) The American crow, which we also have a lot of here in the, uh, in, in, in Florida, um, and way up into the rest of the southeastern United States as well. They tend to be a little bit more inland, but they'll, they'll cross over each other. Uh, but fish crows gather in huge numbers and big roosts at night and there there was a big roost in the mangroves. So we'd have twenty two thousand fish crows fly out in the morning. So if in the rest le- of the day so somebody wh- counted ten fish crows, mm-hmm. I didn't count them. I mean you you you, you have them all counted in the big uh in the big In the begin in the lift-off. Morning. So if yeah. you
2: came later, that's not something yeah. you're going to even see. Yeah, you just estimated. So estimate it. when you're talking about their, their roosting, see, when when you were talking about it earlier, I was thinking just one single bird is going to its little hole, and it's, you know, coming out. But now you're saying that there's masses amounts that roost. So that is that a common thing that a lot of the birds roost together? I guess every Absolutely. bird has a different... Format, but is that more common than not when uh, it large amounts? There or? are
0: a lot of species that group together, probably for safety and security at night. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they're uh, sometimes they're in single flock groups, and sometimes there are lots of different birds that uh, that that do this together. Mm-hmm. And um, the the most common lo- locations are uh, are coastal areas, mangrove stands, uh, salt marshes. And then inland uh, freshwater marshes, uh-huh. for whatever reasons, birds that like to, to roost tend to look out areas, something areas like that.
2: Make me think of something, and I just want to throw it out there before we go on, because I'm personally, I'm fascinated with this because I, I talk to the birds in my yard when oh. they, they do a... <whistles> thing and i'll do it right back to them and then what they'll do is they'll add one little note to the end and then i'll have to do that and then we'll do that back and forth a whole bunch of times until they get it so wild i can't do it or i just need to go on and do something else mm-hmm. but you know i've noticed that you know In my yard, I have, mine is a wildlife sanctuary. So I'm very much, you know, conscious about the wildlife around me and that sort of thing. But I do notice that, I did find out that, you know, outdoor birds or excuse me, outdoor cats are a big problem for our birds. And I just really wanted to make sure that we touched on that because a lot of people don't think that that's a problem, but it really is. And if you can uh, just a little bit, I'm taking away from what we're talking about, but I want you to make sure that we get that in.
0: Indeed. Um, And it's something that 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 uh, that drives passions. Uh, very strongly on both sides. Uh, on both sides, yeah. and uh, there there are a lot of folks that that very legitimately love birds, and a lot of folks that very legitimately love cats. And so, I don't want to step on anyone's toes. Well, let's but it step. is true that let's uh, just that, tell the facts that, that cats yeah. are uh, cats uh, that are outside uh, do represent a significant mortality threat to birds, and it is believed that literally tens of millions of birds are killed by cats every year. Cats are uh, are of their nature dangerous predators. They love to catch and kill things, and they love uh-huh. to catch and kill birds. Cats are wonderful pets at home. Oh, I love. I have a cat. They're, they're I love healthier cats. when they stay at home. They're happier when they stay at home. Yeah. And um, and cats are great. I've had I've had cats before, and, and I hope everyone who has a cat has a wonderful indoor cat and loves it and takes great care of it. Yeah, because. I do too. Because I better leave that at that.
2: Well, I'll go on uh, because I'm a big, strong believer in this and, uh, you know, having, it's not natural uh, for a cat to be outdoors because it's not, it's environment. It's an environment originally a bazillion years ago uh, when they were wild animals, but they're no longer wild animals. They are uh, indoor pets. And so, you know, I occasionally let my cat go outside with me, but I have a on a a harness and a leash and I tie her up to, I mean, it's a long one, Trust me, uh, I tie her up to like the leg of a chair while I'm working in the garden so she can come outside if she wants to. Uh, but it, she's definitely not hunting animals, you know. Uh, so I, I just wanted to really and, and and like you said, it's a lot healthier for them. You know, they can't get hit by a car inside. They can't get attacked by another animal inside and they can't like my next door neighbor. They had let theirs out and it ate a poisoned rat and so the cat died because they got into some poison which we should never do anyway just for any predatory birds and that sort of thing but uh you know please 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 keep your bird or your uh your bird killing cats no just your cats indoors and if you do have them out be with them At all times, it's just, it's a totally inappropriate thing to have an outdoor cat. So uh, you don't want to step on toes, but I don't mind it at all. (laughs) So so there's that. Uh, So uh, back to, you know, the birding situation, Um, we talked a little bit earlier on, and part of the, you know, the guy was looking at all the bird feathers to... um, you know acknowledge how many birds were being killed for body decoration, and then then th- talking about how many birds were being killed for uh restaurant um, uh, food, which surprised me, but now you know back in the day that's the way it was uh so nowadays uh of course if the the birds kill an incredible amount of, or excuse me the cats kill an incredible amount of birds uh what else is the problem uh is it I mean, loss of habitat, or uh, is there some more diseases, or w- what is you know causing? Because I believe you told me there was a huge amount of bird loss. Is that true?
0: Uh, yes one of the one of the uh, one of the many scientific studies that the Christmas bird count data has been used in uh, was the the famous Ken Rosenberg study. It was in the the late of the 2000s. I can't remember if it was a 2017 or 2019 study, I think 2017. And that's the the famous study where Rosenberg and his team uh, determined that since 1970, uh, bird populations in North America had dropped an estimated 30%. Now
2: listen to that. Bird populations in the United States has dropped an estimated 30%. And that's why he's on this show. Is this is a not sustainable number so that's what we have to talk about is to see what we can do to improve that
0: the um yeah and the, the, the that 30% apparently represents a loss of of about 3 billion birds 3 billion uh so uh so so that's what uh, studies such as the Christmas bird count um project uh, have been able to to contribute a more specific understanding of the of the threats that these populations face, and you had had posed the question: uh, What are uh, believed to be the the main threats to bird populations yes. currently? And I think you you put your finger right on what is believed to be the the most significant threat, and that is habitat loss. Okay, you know just the uh, the 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 changes in the land and landscape. Um, that have occurred, um, which favor a few birds and disfavor many, many birds. More birds that um, disfavor cause uh, cause population declines mm-hmm. and very disproportionate declines in different mm-hmm. species. Um, now, you mentioned that- dis- disease. Okay. Um, the uh, certainly uh, uh, West Nile uh, created a, a big downturn in. Crow and jay populations, uh, among other species, uh, over the course of the last twenty years, um, the an in, in oh, interesting oh. thing that's happening is. Climate change well, is well, moving bird we move, populations around. Before we move to well. that,
2: you just mm-hmm. you stated two birds were those the ones uh, that were most affected by the West Nile disease. Was uh, the crow and the jay? Because I I didn't know it was a specific
0: bird. Yeah, the, I I believe that a lot of bird species were affected, mm-hmm. but the the corvid species were partic- particularly affected. Oh, okay. And so I those know. are th- that's a group of related birds, uh, the jays and the and the crows. I didn't know that. Yeah. And uh, and and they were unusually heavily affected by that virus.
2: Yeah, and you were saying a disease. that You were going on. Or-
0: so yeah, that's a, that's an example of a disease pressure. There there probably are lots of different disease pressures that happen at different times over time. Uh, so that might not be something that's that's necessarily that different now. Uh, but the habitat loss is uh, is certainly uh, a different and an extreme thing that um, that has been that has been happening in the in the recent past.
2: Let's uh, reintroduce what's going on. So in case somebody wanted to call in or send us an email, uh, today uh, you're listening to the Sustainable Living Show coming to you from the station of WMNF in Tampa. Today we're talking about birding with Charlie Fisher. If you want to be part of this conversation, give us a call at 813-239-9663 or send us an email at dj at and we will read it on the air. Uh, so apparently I have uh, an email. I don't see it. I'm going to have Bill come over here and help me. You know, this is not what I normally do. I'm usually just the talker. (laughs) I'm not the reader or any of that. Uh, So let's see. These two? Okay. Let's go. Here we go. Oh, um, hi, Annie. Missing Kenny today. Charlie, so excited when I found out you were going to be on one of my favorite shows in WMNF. Hello from Bev, Bev Keeney. Do you know, Beth? Absolutely. Okay. I love that information. You're following your passion and willing to share with others. We live on a city golf course, the Babe Zaharis Golf Course in North Tampa. Oh, that's a really cute uh, place, that area. Our association helped the residents here focus on what their favorite things are living in Forest Hills. Of course, nature and our green space came up to, right to the top of the list. In our urban environment, we have a lot of bird lovers and nature artists. What can we do to help now? And what other... Um, let's see. And what other activities can we assist the rest of the year? And that's from Bev Keeney in Forest Hills.
0: Bev, hiya! So, so delighted to, to hear from you. Um, it's, it's been a while. Uh, so great shout out to you and, and uh, and, and thanks for, for checking in during the show. <coughs> I. I think that a great way to, to get involved and find out about um, events of this nature on an ongoing basis is to reach out to the Tampa Audubon Society, especially where you, you are located around Forest Hills. Uh, Tampa Audubon is going to be very active in that, in that area. And I know they have an outstanding website. And Bev, if you check in there, you'll be able to see upcoming events and meetings and find out about all of the things that they have uh, that they have going on during the year.
2: So we have another email. This is interesting uh, to me. So we'll just go. I'm going to read the whole thing. Hi, guys. Great show today. Fascinating topic. I'm glad you like that. I do, too. Uh, they live in Seminole Heights. And a few years ago, they visited a store. was advertised as a Sound Outside that said a pet store. They went inside, and they had a whole wall with pigeons and cages. They also had one small fish tank, and I'm guessing it helped diversify pet stores. But the birds were definitely the focus on sales. And, and then their question is, is there a big push for raising pigeons in Tampa. It was a weird experience to visit there. Maybe um, an ethnic thing, because I know that people used to raise uh, homing pigeons, right? Isn't that a thing that they did back in the day? And now, is that something that you're aware of, or no?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I have to say, I don't know a lot of uh, the details about this hobby, but there are definitely a lot of folks who uh, who keep uh, pigeons. And um, and they engage in some competitions associated with them. I think that the competitions often revolve around uh, taking the birds to a location and then uh, and then how quickly the the birds find find their way home. Um, so that is uh, that is an, a a kind of bird related competitive activity that's out there that I don't know a lot about directly, but I think that there are people that are that are quite passionate about it. And of course, a lot of people keep birds as pets in their homes as well.
2: Oh yeah, I have a friend that she, she, um... Well, I have a couple of people that they uh, save uh, birds, oh. you know, and then there's also different birds, <clears throat> you know, that live a very long time captive birds. Indeed. And if you if the person dies, they that needs to go to another person because they outlive their, their parentage, you know. So that's the thing. I do have a little um, e- email here from somebody that's pretty upset about the cats and the birds. And you, you knew that was going to happen, probably. Uh, and then they said that somebody poisoned some cats because of it and that sort of thing we're not uh suggesting to harm anything okay that is not our position here we are suggesting to do the best that you can by the animals that you uh are involved with and so um nobody's we're not increasing any kind of harm so i just wanted to uh, Make sure you knew that. We do have a caller as well. So I'm going to take Richard. Uh, Richard, uh, you're on air. What are you, Do you have a question for Charlie?
0: Well, actually, no. This is more of an observation. And thanks, great uh, show and a topic that, that hits home because I feed birds and have fed birds in my yard forever. For yes. Years. I live... Uh, Near the Lower Park Zoo area, a lot of big trees. I've noticed specifically because you were talking about the decline in bird population, a real decline in insect eating birds.
2: Yes, I'm glad you brought that up because I want to talk about that too.
0: Yeah, and it it makes me sad because they're really small and really beautiful birds. But what I have done, and I've uh, had it for years, is put suet out, which you can get at any big box store uh, and they have suet holders, and the insect eaters will eat the suet. Yes. Four species of warbler come to my feeder specifically for the suet. So, you know, I, I, I'm glad to be helpful. Yes. I if you recommended anything else that would help the insect eaters uh, around.
2: Well, that's interesting that you brought that up because we had the Wild Birds Unlimited gal on last week, and she said that there is a specific type of suet that they sell there that doesn't melt uh, like it would in the heat here. Um, so I would think, and, and she also said that my uh, uh, red-bellied uh, woodpecker was one that liked that type of food as well. And then I also want to bring up the fact is that a lot of people are uh, using uh, a lot of pesticides for insects in their gardens. And so they're killing all these uh, insects, which is what the birds would feed on. So they're disrupting that whole uh, circle of nature. and, And plus, the fact is, if they're... If they're gonna eat a, uh, an insect that's already been treated then it's sick so then they're eating a sick thing so I don't know how that gets passed to them but thank you so much Charlie uh, or excuse me I'm looking at it right at Charlie uh, thank you so much Richard for calling in and bringing that up because I think that's a super great subject so yeah, uh, great. let's ask Charlie is there other suet or is feeding birds a good thing as I think is a good idea
0: I think I think feeding feeding birds is is certainly a uh, uh, Perfectly, uh, perfectly fine, perfectly nice pastime. I think, I think here in Florida, the birds don't really count on us necessarily right. to provide to, to provide a, lo- a lot of food. Uh, so I don't think it's very. I don't think it's disruptive for them. That was my question about that because, them, because I didn't, I didn't want to be here. a
2: disruption to whatever yeah. their natural cycle was.
0: Yeah, I think. I think it's. Uh, I. I think it's a. It's a. A, a perfectly safe for the birds activity uh, mm-hmm. a, a, around here. Um, I know as well, Richard, that that some people have pretty good success with uh, with mealworms. Yes, um, I'm. I don't know anything about <sighs> wrangling or keeping mealworms myself. Well, but, uh, there's also a special, option.
2: there's a special feeder for the mealworms because uh, there are other birds that will eat them all up. Uh, and so there's, if you want to, I think it's specifically the bluebird and there's a bluebird feeder for mealworms that they know how to finagle it. Uh, so that's something, you know, you could check into. So I have a, another caller here, uh, Bill uh, from Land Lakes. Bill, you're on the air. Do you have a question for Charlie?
1: I don't have a question, but I do want to thank you for the courage to point out the danger that outdoor cats cause to our native. Thank you. And that I've been, I've had cats in my entire life that always kept them indoors. Right. the only safe way to have a cat. Thank you so much for your program.
2: Well, thank you for calling in and and, uh, because I had a real negative one. And so I'm glad I get a positive one to to override that. Thank you very much for calling in. And thank you. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Bye. Okay, well, that's good. I like the balance of that. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Focus on the positive, right? Indeed, indeed. Yeah. So let, let's get back to you, Charlie. Uh, so you're going to start this uh, bird count. Let's see if I have some. What does the compiler do? You you're listening to all. You're getting all the information from all the people that are out there.
0: Indeed. So I if, if, the as as compile compiler, the first thing I'll I'll do is uh, reach out to the folks who've kind of served as my, my group leaders and kind of make sure that I'm all lo- lined up with them and, and have a, a, a group of leaders who can, c- can work with additional volunteers to, to get the count work done for the day. Because one thing is very important to, to understand. Do, do think about this, listeners. Um, we're talking about a 15-mile diameter circle. And we're talking about 24 hours to cover it. And ideally, we would count all of the birds that are in that circle. That's the ideal, right? Cast our minds back to seventh, eighth grade math. Maybe it was sixth grade. Whenever it was that we learned the formula for the area of a circle, it's pi times the radius squared. So if you multiply 7.5 against itself to square it.
2: He's an accountant. I'm an accountant.
0: I can't stop with (laughs) the math. And then you multiply that product by 3.14159, you get the rather amazing figure of 177 square miles. So somehow we're supposed to try to count all of the birds in a 24-hour period in 177 square miles. Wow. 177 square miles is a big area. Yeah, it is. The only way to deal with that logistically is to break it up into sectors. Yeah. And once you've broken it up into areas and sectors, you kind of need your lieutenants, your sector leaders to wrangle everybody and get those areas organized and cover them yeah so, so
2: you have a one pointed you have a specific area designated for the uh the the leader, and then yep. he has his people in that area and he designates them in specific areas and they stay there and make their count and then he puts that together then he gives it to you
0: that's it exactly oh that's
2: wow exactly that's it. that's a great system
0: so the uh yeah the the sector or or area approach is uh, is the tried and true approach. Then the different groups, depending on the kinds of uh, of areas that are available to them in the areas, can decide when they want to start, how they want to start. Do they want to get breakfast together, um, and um, count up the birds for for the for the day? Then each of the area leaders will gather up their lists and hand them off to me as the compiler. Hopefully, within a day or two after the end of the count, so that I can add everything up and put it into the Audubon database.
2: Well, that sounds like a great idea. I mean, you know, it, it sounds like it's all uh, lining up. I wanted to give our telephone number and our uh, information out. We're talking with Charlie Fisher about the uh, Christmas bird count. Our telephone number is 813-239-9663. Or you can email us at dj at org. Uh, and I have... Uh, Another Annie uh, online, and uh, so she's from Gulfport. I love that place. So, Annie, you're uh, live on air. What would you like to talk about with Charlie today? Hi.
1: You were talking about feeding birds and all the birds that come here from the north. We're what's called a flyby state, and one of the absolutely best ways you can feed birds is to plant native plants because they are... Uh, having berries when the, during the winter when the birds come flying by. And they love to stop. They don't stay here, but they will stop many of the birds on their way to South America. And uh, it, native plants really do the trick. Too many people put out things that aren't native, like milkweed is great for butterflies as well, but we like to have the, there's a Florida milkweed. You know all this stuff. <laughs> yes. Anyway, plant native plants for the flyby birds. Absolutely. Okay.
2: Like, that's a really good point because, you know, people are out there doing uh, the butterfly garden. Well, let's do everything gardens. <laughs> you know like Absolutely. for the all the wildlife that we can come in contact with then you won't have super pressure on one thing and i think that's part of the problem with people that are beginners in you know wanting to help and you know making oases for animals and birds and so and um butterflies specifically butterflies and so they get completely caught up in one thing and then it just com- it disappears because there's too much pressure on that one thing so oh, di- yeah. Well, diversification sure. yeah
1: Monoculture is never good. Never good, uh, Annie. Yeah, native plants are great. Not only that, but they don't require any extra water. That's right. Or any of that. And they feed more than just birds. There are a lot of all kinds of critters around Florida.
2: Absolutely. Native and plants. then they won't get it on your vegetable plants or all the things that you covet. <laughs>
1: That's right. There you go. There's an upside. Thanks
2: for calling in, Annie. I appreciate yeah, it. Right. Sure thing- uh oh, I just let her go. Sorry. Um, so there's another thing that somebody wanted to mention. First, one of them was please don't feed ducks bread. You know, that's not a thing you want to do. And then also, this one is uh, Hi, Charlie. What does the Cornell Lab of Ornithology do with the data from the annual bird counts? And how many years of data do they have now? Beth from Tampa. Is that Got your life? <laughs> it <laughs> don't might know. be as well the the uh the, the
0: the the Cornell uh Laboratory of Ornithology fantastic organization uh critical supporter of the ebird project um they i'm i'm sure a lot of people involved with Cornell Labs um are also involved with the Christmas bird count cuz it's such a big project but the uh, the Christmas bird count is definitely an an Audubon Society uh, a a project. Um, the the data uh, I know from uh, from Jeff LeBaron, who's who directs the the uh, the Audubon Christmas bird count, has been used in at least three hundred peer reviewed oh, studies. Wow. So so real uh, He's deep the guy. scientific studies. And the Ken Rosenberg is a is a Cornell uh, Laboratory of Ornithology guy, um, and so he absolutely used that Audubon data when he was uh, doing that Cornell led study um, that described the thirty percent reduction in bird population since 1970.
2: Wow. Uh, so these are the people that, if people want to get involved in it, how how would they get involved? Uh, do they con- try to contact those people, or how do they do contact Audubon, or how do they do this? The
0: best way to uh, to to reach out to get involved with the Christmas bird count, in particular, if you're interested in volunteering on the Christmas bird count, is to is to do a quick Google and uh, ask Mister Google. Um, Something along the lines of, uh, of uh, Christmas Bird, bird, bird Count, count Volunteer Florida. 2023, something yeah. like that. And you'll get a link to a website, which is, it's this long website. I'll, yak, I'll, I'll say it real quickly. It's www.audubon.org forward slash conservation forward slash join dash Christmas dash bird dash count. <laughs> <Wow. laughs> so instead of memorizing that, if you do a quick Google, you'll get right. that link. Uh, when you click that link you'll be able to see uh, additional instructions for how to find a count near you, including looking at a map that shows where the circles are in Florida. Or if you're visiting uh, uh, relatives outside of Florida, you can look at, you can look at their map. And when you click on one of those circles, you'll get the email address of the compiler. That's the person like me. Mm-hmm. And you can reach out to them and get involved. That's is, the way to do it.
2: Is there anything that you think that we've missed? We're running out of time. We're almost, uh, the show's almost over. Is there anything that you feel that is very important that we possibly miss today in our conversation?
0: I think we've really hit on on a lot of the key and important things. Just wanna, just wanna say that, you know, if you're, uh, if, you're, if you're getting into birding and bird watching or, or as one is getting more into uh, to, to nature things and nature projects, getting involved in these citizen science projects like the Christmas Bird Count can be really fulfilling and enlightening and enjoyable.
2: Yeah, it really is. Uh, you know, Kenny, uh, yesterday, well, last week he mentioned that he went on this birding watch uh, years and years ago, and he knew a lot. He knows a lot of birds. And so he identified all the birds that he knew, and then all of a sudden the guy that was the leader started pointing out all the birds that he didn't see. And so that's very important, you know, to learn uh, more about the ones that you don't see from people that know how to do that. You know, they they have these trained eyes. So I guess uh, thank you so much for being here, Charlie. It was wonderful. I really enjoyed this conversation. It was great. And I hope that Kenny's going to get better and he can be back here uh, to help us uh, again. And I want to thank Irene for taking the calls. And, of course, Mr. Bill Grace for working the boards and and bailing me out on everything that I need bailed out on. Uh, and if you enjoyed this show and our weekly contact, please go to wmnf.org, donating through the tip jar and directing your donation to the Sustainable Living Show. Stay tuned in the next hour and you'll hear WMNF Community Speaks with Mobili. Make sure to tune in next Monday morning at 11 for the next Sustainable Living Show. We'll be talking with Tom Reyes about Living Shorelines. Follow our Facebook page, Sustainable Living WMNF, to stay in the loop. Also, listen to our past shows. Just go to listen on demand on WMNF.org. And the way you do that is you go to the uh, the WMNF page, go to scheduling, look for our show, click that, then it'll bring our page up. Go to the very bottom and listen on demand will be there. And I am Annie Ellis, Miss and Kenny Coogan. And remember, if you're looking for someone to save the world, look in the mirror. Bye-bye.
0: You are listening to You are listening to WMNF Tampa